everybody had a good Christmas? Um, I get to introduce our guest speaker today, and I am very excited about this. And let me tell you why. Uh, one of the things that we do about Lake Sam, you, you know this if you go here, but if you don't all the time, and I know we have a lot of guests. And by the way, it's so cool to see family back and to see all the people that we grew up with and so on. Uh, it's wonderful to see you. But, but here's what happens at Lake Sam is, is that we try and pull the curtain back as far as we possibly can so that you can see what's going on in terms of process. And the reason why is because if all you're ever hearing is just content, sermon to sermon to sermon, it can sometimes be a little difficult to connect the dots. But when we pull the curtain back so that you understand why certain people are speaking and why they're speaking at a certain time and so on, you, you begin to see how God is actually the one who is taking us on a journey. And this is very much what is happening here today. Because again, for those of you who have been, for those of you who are visiting, the big word that God has been bringing us all year long is how much he loves us. I mean, to a death and in a way that I, it is beyond what we understand and beyond what we actually live. And how to start living in that love. And one of the things that's been happening towards the end of the year is, is God showing me on a particular overage in terms of work-life balance and just working all the time and so on. And, and may I say, uh, everything that I said over the last couple of months about if I distrust God, let me just tell you, everything is playing out so beautifully, it's unbelievable. I mean, I, I use that word very cautiously, but advisedly. It is really beyond my comprehension how much God has responded to my obedience. Is that the right way to put it? Because it doesn't seem right, does it? And yet that's what's happened. I mean, God has just done everything and more. So it's going very, very well. But during that process, as I was sort of, God was doing some things with me, and again, I was pulling the curtain back and sharing them in order to understand the journey that God has us all on. One of the things that happened was, is that Serenity and I started talking, and she's our speaker today. And during that time, there was this idea that she had. She said, it's, it's going through my mind, and I kept going, there's something to this, and we need to do this. And at that point in time, we actually had some other things scheduled, and, but I just, the more that I thought about it, the more I went, this is not something to be done in the month of January. This is actually something to be done in this weekend. And the reason why is because we traditionally take this weekend to look forward, to essentially establish new footing, to, to rework on the foundations so that we are set up properly for what's coming in the new year. And I have to tell you, already as I'm praying about what God's going to do this next year, I already have a pretty good sense, I think, of where he's going to go and what he's going to do. And I am just so incredibly excited. And this step is a perfect step from where we've been to where he wants to take us. And it has to do with the song that we were singing, by the way, uh, Trust Without Borders. Trust Without Borders. What a, what, what a great phrasing. Trust Without Borders. There's nowhere that I'm not trusting you. You know, in every single thing, I'm trusting you completely. And so this is, like I say, you're, you're going to hear this. And so let me just finish what I'm saying by saying this. So we, I said, you're on. You're the one that's supposed to be doing this. This is how God wants to set us up for the new year. Can't wait to hear it. And then I got to hear it in our preach call. And that's what we do. We have people from the congregation, and we'll spend some time uh, on a preach call together where we're, they'll give me the sermon, and then we'll talk about it a little bit and just kind of work through it. I don't do content. I just help with story structure so that it comes across well and so on. In this case, I didn't have to do anything. And it was just one of those ones that ha it happens every once in a while. And 
I have to say, I just want to ex- share with you what happened to me when I was listening to it. About a third of the way through, this thought came into my mind. And I, I was listening, so I just kind of let it drift out again. And about two-thirds of the way through, I determined that I was going to have to say this to her. And so at the end of the sermon when she got done, this was my first words to her. It was, I said, I'm just glad I know you. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm just glad I know you. You're just, it's so rich. It's so deep. It's so wonderful. It's so on point. It's so helpful. It's done in such a way that is, well, you're going to see all of that here in one moment. So without further introduction, would you please welcome Serenity Dillaway. Hi. I have to say, he gave a few more comments than there were no comments at all on that sermon call. <laughs> it was like, it's great, now change this stuff. So, <laughs> It was all great, and I needed the help, but it wasn't perfect. Um, as he said, I'm Serenity Dilloway. Um, I've spoken here once about six months ago, but I wanted to introduce myself again in case you weren't hanging on every word of that sermon or if you're new or haven't been here before. Um, I have been coming here for seven or eight years now. I am a stay-at-home mom of three little girls. Before that, and still a little bit, I do some grant writing. I raise money for nonprofits. Um, so I'm actually a, a much better writer than speaker. That's my, you know, my wheelhouse. So, um, yeah, that's where I come from. Here's a picture of my girls. Sorry, turn, don't turn it on. Those are my girls. I have a four-year-old, Magnolia, and two two-year-olds. That's Willow and Rowan. Um, and uh, that was actually going to be the picture for my Christmas card this year, but I wrote a sermon instead. So <laughs> um, here is the Christmas card to all of you. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Probably more of you got it this way. Um, in fact, um, we had a great Christmas. I hope you guys did too. But it was very chaotic. Christmas with... My, my eldest daughter doesn't love candy, but my two two-year-olds can't get enough of it. And at one point, one of them was painting her face with chocolate uh, by the end of the day. So it was really, really busy. And I um, kind of wanted a more restful day. I was enviously looking at people kind of with older kids who were, like, drinking coffee and sitting around. Um, because lately, God has been speaking to me a lot about rest. Six months ago... I was praying to God, and I, I was in quiet time, and my twins had just turned two, and I was really pursuing God um, about rest, because I was feeling overwhelmed, and not the kind of overwhelmed where, like, I needed a lunch date with my friends, but, like, I need something to give here, right? You've, uh, people have been in that place, right? Like, this isn't going to be solved with half an hour of prayer time. I need life to give up a little bit, just somewhere. Um, and at that time, I got a word from God, and he said, take Sabbath where you can get it which I was so excited about. That's a really great word to get when you're asking God about rest. Go for it. Everywhere you can find Sabbath, take it, take it, take it. But at the same time, not prayerfully, I made the decision, this was in June, to give my three wonderful girls the best summer any kid has ever had. We went to the beach at the lake at least once a week. We played in our backyard all the time. We went to Remlingers to go on the roller coasters and stuff they have for little kids there. We took a two-week trip through five states, visiting all sorts of family, going to a lake. And it was so wonderful, and they had such a blast. But it was not restful, and I was not obeying what I had been told. I did not Sabbath where I could find it. In fact, I created a lot more work. 
So by the end of the summer, after all of this, I was starting to experience some physical things, and I went to my doctor, and she told me that I had an ulcer from all of the ibuprofen Advil that I had been taking to give my kids the best summer ever, because I had ignored my headaches and ignored my backaches. And at 30, I had an ulcer, which was a little bit startling. And then she said to me, almost the exact same words that God had said. She said, I know your plate is full, but you need to rest when you can, Serenity. When God and a doctor tell you the same thing, <laughs> two months apart, right? I started to listen, right? My health depended on it. So I spent the last four months really pressing in. So what does this mean? If I'm supposed to rest when I can, how am I supposed to do that? And how am I supposed to work differently too? But there's a contradiction. The more I pushed into it, the more I felt uh, torn, right? And I think that at first I thought it was from the world, but I see it in the Bible if we read it the wrong way too. Um, you see, the contradiction is that I am capable of some pretty amazing things, but I'm not capable of doing them all the time for the rest of my life. So here's a picture of what's called a Pinterest fail, which I love. So here's um, a picture of a professionally done cake and then someone trying to do the same thing at home. Um, so this is a metaphor. I'm not actually capable of making this cake. Um, but, you know, metaphorically, I can make that beautiful cake. I can do it. If I work really, really hard, I can make that beautiful cake. But what's sustainable for me, what I can do through my whole life and not make myself ill, is this bottom cake, which probably tastes just as good, but it doesn't look as nice, and it doesn't have the wow factor, right? I think this contradiction even comes out in the Bible if we're looking at it the wrong way. One of the verses I loved when I was in college was Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. I loved this verse when I was in college. I was geared up. I was going to make a change in the world. But as time went by, and I became more and more burdened with my own sense of desire to do great things, this verse seemingly contradictory, became more and more important to me. Then Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. So how do we reconcile those two things? On one side, do whatever your hand finds to do with all your might, with an easy burden and a light yoke? That's the question I'd like to pursue today. Um, and I'm going to have someone pray for the sermon first. That's Kezia Lee, who's sitting right over here. Um, she is going to Western Washington, but home on break. And she was my mother's helper for two years. So she took a lot of my burden off. And I love her to pieces, not least because she introduced me to Sherlock and Doctor Who, TV shows which I love. So please pray for us and lift up another church. Dear God, I just thank you for this amazing woman who pursues you with all of her heart. I know that as you are preparing her life to bring her to a place to be able to give this sermon, that you are also preparing our lives to bring us to a place where we can hear your words that you have through her. Um, I just lift up all the churches and the ministries that are reaching out to college students right now. And college is definitely a time where it's so easy to forget to take a break. And I pray that you would just help the world, which forgets to slow down, 
to remember to slow down and to find you and to find time in our lives for the God that created us. Amen. Thank you. So at first when I was asking these questions, um, I thought it was a stage of life thing, right? I have three little girls. Um, I'm a mom. I stay at home. Of course I'm exhausted and tired and overwhelmed, and my to-do list is way too long. Um, actually, I don't have a to-do list anymore because I gave it up because it's too frustrating, right? I thought it was a stage of life thing. But as I spoke about my problems, because I'm kind of an oversharer, so I was talking to a lot of different people, men, women, older than me, younger than me, a lot of people kept echoing this sentiment, right? I want to go full bore into my ministry, but I can't do it for so long or else I get completely burnt out. And I think that this is a problem that we've been dealing with for thousands of years. The reason I think that is because the story of Mary and Martha and Luke, I was reading in Luke, and it stuck out to me as the perfect example of this issue. You see, I think that we often read Mary and Martha as two different people, and that's not a wrong reading, right? But there are two different types of people. I've heard it preached this way, right? Like, she's a Mary, he's a Martha, listener versus doer, you know, different types of people. And that's not wrong, but when I was reading it, um, God really illuminated to me that in addition, maybe it's two different sides of ourselves that we can either be a listener or a doer. And what, before I read the passage, which I will, I want you to look at for the word choice. That is my speed bump when I was reading through. The word choice came out to me because if it is a choice, I'm naturally a Martha, but if it's a choice, maybe I can become more like a Mary sometimes. While they were traveling, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. So we can choose one or the other at any time, maybe. And I can think of no better praise than for Jesus himself to tell you that you made the right choice, given two options. I like to ask questions of God, so the next one I asked was, okay, well, how do I get into a position where I can make the right choice? I think the first step is that we need to be able to recognize Jesus entering our living room. Unlike Mary and Martha, it isn't just Jesus walking through the door. Sometimes that's someone we need to serve, right? You know, they talk about if you visited the sick and the imprisoned, you fed the hungry, you're serving Jesus. I think also sometimes it's someone unexpected who's come to teach us something that no one else could teach us. And we need to be able to pay attention and focus on what they're saying, understanding that it's really God trying to teach us something. This is where Sabbath comes in. And before I go down that road, I want to introduce you to a concept which comes from my background, um, which is psychology. I am a little bit obsessed with the psychology of perception, um, to the point where my husband gets really bored of me talking about it. I love to talk about how different languages have like different words for colors, and like in Russian, there are two colors of blue, what we would consider blue, but like they, they are two different colors, the way we might say blue and green. I love thinking about this stuff. And I came across a few months ago this concept called tetrachromatism. Uh, so, and it has to do with how we perceive light. 
So here's a human eye, but you didn't think you were going to see this today. So in the human eye, we have rods, which help us see light and dark, but not really color, which is why when it's dark, you don't really see color. You kind of see black and white and maybe a little blue. Um, but we also have these cones, color cones, red, green, and blue. This is what the normal human eye has. Someone who's colorblind will have one of those three types of cones. Let me clarify. There are many, many cones of three types. Someone who's colorblind, a certain type of their cones doesn't work. So those people who are colorblind can pass down their unactivated cones to their daughters. But women are very rarely colorblind. So there are many, many women in the world who have four types of cones. They've got the three that we've got, and then this fourth one from their colorblind father that's unactivated. You guys still with me? But very, very, very rarely, like we've been able to identify and confirm that there are three people in the entire world so far have four activated cones. They can see more colors than you and I can conceive of. Here's a typical tetrachromatic test. So it looks kind of like a colorblindness test if you've ever taken it, but I can't see the numbers there. And if you can, you should call someone because you're amazing, amazing. Um, and I would love to hear what the world looks like to you. That's the part that's really fascinating to me because theoretically, presumably, these people have existed for thousands of years. We didn't know that there are tetrachromats, that's what we call them, four colors, tetrachromats in the world, until 1993. They were seeing beauty and nuance in colors, and they were trying to explain it to us, maybe. And we were like, yeah, yeah, that's red, right? Yeah, uh-huh, I see, it's red, you know? But there was a reality out there that they were perceiving that they couldn't express verbally. Here's where the spiritual metaphor comes in. This is what Sabbath does for us. We have, I mean, we don't actually have, but in the metaphor, we have this fourth cone that can see the spiritual dimension in the world. And we have the chance to become spiritual tetrachromats, seeing things that the rest of the world can't, seeing things beyond what we consider to be reality, if that makes sense. But it has to be activated. We have to lean on God and be spirit-filled for it to work. Otherwise, we just have this sort of, you know, we can still see reality perfectly fine, but we're not seeing what God is doing in the world around us. And Sabbath helps clean off that, that fourth cone so that we can see what God's doing, making us spiritual tetrachromats. I'm going to use that phrase a lot. I'm sorry, but you've learned a new word today. Um, Ezekiel 20:12 says, Moreover, I, God, gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Sanctify means to make holy, to set apart, to wash clean of the gunk that the world puts on top of us. Sabbath helps us to see God moving in the world by making us more like God, not like God, but, you know, more holy and less of the world. I didn't take Sabbath very seriously for a long time. Um... I thought it was sort of antiquated. I thought it was something that, 
I had a lot of friends in college who were Orthodox Jews, two very close friends. And so I remember watching them go through their Sabbath rituals, not being able to turn on lights, not being able to purchase or make food. On a few occasions, I felt pity on them and would like turn off their lights so they could sleep at night without the light on because they were not allowed to do that. And so to me, Sabbath seemed really legalistic for a long time. But God takes Sabbaths really seriously. It's part of the Ten Commandments, which puts it right up there with murder, adultery, lying under oath. And there are many, many laws about Sabbaths. And time and again, the prophets talk about how profaning the Sabbaths is one of the reasons that the Israelites were exiled. Why does God take Sabbath so seriously? I think it's because the cumulative effects of working without true rest begin to cloud our God vision. We aren't spiritual tetrachromats, and we're not seeing God work in the world. And we become more like the world, to the point where we begin to infect the people around us with those worldly values, not being able to see God move and work. So I thought it was antiquated, but in 2009, Kirk gave a sermon on Sabbath, and he talked about what a modern Sabbath looks like. Because everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And if you're more interested, you should go back to it. I remember I, it was January of 2009 because I was pregnant with my first daughter at the time and I literally chuckled through the whole sermon because there was gonna be no Sabbath for me, right? I was about to have a baby, no sleep, no rest, no time for any of that stuff. Over the last four years, I've realized that the more I think I don't have time for a Sabbath, the more I actually need to make that a priority in my life. If you have a restful life, Sabbath is important, but if you have a chaotic and too busy life, it's essential. So what does a modern Sabbath look like? I think we need to meet our basest obligations, the lowest level of obligation, right? I still care for my daughters, I still change diapers on Sabbath, right, on my Sabbath. I still make sure that they get food and are safe. But other than that, at every point, we turn towards joy. We turn towards what is life-giving to us. It's funny that I have to work at this, right? But you do. You have to work to turn towards what God has for you. I took a class a long time ago on design and how humans interact with their environment, um, buildings and design and things like that. And one thing they said was that nature is very restorative. And it is, like physically, medically, nature is restorative to people. And they posited that was because in nature, we don't have to concentrate, meaning force ourselves to pay attention. Instead, nature fascinates us, which is the opposite of concentration. You can't look away. You, it draws you in without you even trying, right? I think Sabbath is exactly like that. Whatever fascinates you, whatever God sends to draw you in, that gives you life. It's going to look different for different people, which is really, really cool. God is an individual God. For some people, that looks like hiking. For me, it does not look like hiking on my Sabbath, no. For me, it looks like reading a book and drinking a cup of tea, right? That's what a modern Sabbath looks like. I encourage you all to think about what would rejuvenate you in God on those days. That said, we're not meant to Sabbath every day. We are not hermits living all alone. We live in community, and God has important work for everyone to do. Sabbath is a day of rest to give us perspective for a week of work, and we're meant to work hard. So what should our work look like? 
I looked through the Bible at a lot of different people to see different examples of work, and there were a lot of really bad examples. I feel like the Old Testament is a great source of seeing kind of how people have done it wrong a lot. So I ended up just going straight to Jesus and looking at what he did, because I knew that would be a perfect example. I'm going to go through two of the stories of Jesus and um, talk about not what he's actually doing, his miracles, but about how he's working either before or after that work, because God has ministry work for me, right? I want to see how Jesus behaved right before and right after, because although my ministry work is different, I want to follow his example. So the first story is Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now, right before he fed the 5,000, he had sent the disciples off two by two, and they came back, and they were reporting back to Jesus about what they had done and learned. And this is what happens right before he does that miracle. The apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all they had done and taught. Then Jesus said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving. And people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. I think the first thing that we need to do when we're trying to work differently is pay attention to when God gives us compassion and respond. I think that's kind of Christianity 101. But... Um, the first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus, they didn't have time to eat, which is kind of the ultimate for me of a day that's too busy, right? Like, you don't even have time to have lunch. And people have said that before. Like, such a crazy day. Didn't even have time to eat. Jesus is there, right? They're hungry, but God gives them compassion, and he doesn't ignore it. He turns to it. Now, the first key there is that God, he, he sensed the compassion. He was a spiritual tetrachromat. He was seeing God move in the world, and he was able to respond to it. And the second piece is that he responded to it, which seems simple. But how many times, many times, have I had an experience with someone where I was either supposed to serve them or learn from them, and five minutes later I realized that. I was like, oh my goodness, God was telling me to give them a word or to tell them I wanted to pray for them, and I didn't do it. I didn't see it at the time. We need to be geared up for that. I was talking with my husband the other day about a study that they did a, a while ago at Yale in their divinity school, um, which is the people who are studying to become ministers. And they wanted to see the effects of hurry on compassion. So they took these future ministers and they told them, oh my goodness, this person is sick. Really quick, you have to go preach on the good Samaritan across campus. And they told them different lengths of time, five, 10 minutes, an hour. And then while they were walking across campus to preach, they had someone staged, an actor, calling for help on the side of the path. So these people were going to preach on the Good Samaritan, but if you made them hurry enough, they walked right by. These are ministers walking by someone calling for help, right? What does that say about us? We need to slow down and understand that no one is immune to that. If we're not looking for opportunities to respond to God, we're just going to blaze right by him. So then Jesus responds. He teaches them. He does this amazing miracle, feeds all these people, picks up baskets and baskets of food. This is what happens next. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and head across the lake to Bethsaida while he sent the people home. After telling everyone goodbye, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. 
So he just does this amazing miracle, thousands of people, and he kicks everyone out and goes off by himself. He had a need. He ignored it when God gave him compassion. But the moment that he was done doing the ministry God had for him, he went back to meet his original need to reconnect with God. This is not something that happens in my daily life very often. When I'm having a busy day and God does something amazing through me, I want to do more. I want God to work through me more and more and more and more. I don't say, all right, all y'all get out of here. I'm going to pray. But that's what Jesus does. And then immediately after this, he walks on water. He needed that time to clean off the worldly work. Because working will begin to cloud your vision if you aren't going back to the source to be refilled. If you're pouring out in the Spirit, you have to be refilled. And you have to be cognizant of that. So the next story I want to look at is the woman at the well. I'm going to talk about what Jesus did right after it. So he goes, talks about how they're traveling through Samaria, didn't have time to eat, sits down at the well, tells this woman things about herself he shouldn't know, and revealed himself to be the Messiah. Then she goes to tell everyone that the Messiah has come to Samaria, and the disciples come back with food. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. Then Jesus explained, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. I think the third way we work differently is to lean into the work that God sends to sustain you. My job taking care of my kids is a lot of grunt work. It's a lot of forcing myself to do sometimes things that I don't want to do, of having more patience than I think I have, of having more compassion and grace than I really want to have. But every once in a while, in my job, God sends a little gift, a little piece of sustaining work that pushes me through to the next one. Sometimes that's actually having my daughter understand that when I forgive her, it's grace that's coming down upon her. Sometimes it's when my eldest daughter learns or asks an insightful question that shows that she's thinking about the world in a way that I want her to think about the world, looking for goodness and kindness. And when I get those things, we can't blaze by them. We need to hold them in our hands as the treasure from God that they are. Because if we're spiritual tetrachromats, what's happening is as we see God's beauty and life around us, we're seeing the spiritual poke through. And we need to take it as such and let it nourish us spiritually. I think that Jesus' body was probably still hungry, right? I mean, he wasn't saying that he had calorically gotten energy. What he was saying was, I've had this experience where the spiritual came through and I'm sustained for new work. I do want to offer one caveat, though, about that. If you have a job that's really sustaining to you, that you really, really love, that's exciting and you're passionate about, that's amazing. But you need to be very careful not to mistake restful work with rest. Because work is a funny thing. Before I had my kids, I worked as a grant writer at the ballet, and it was a very exciting job. And I loved it. And the more you do something and the more you're good at it, you can kind of just want to keep doing it and never want to take a break. God takes the Sabbath seriously, and you need to be very careful about not confusing those two. So the fourth point about how we work differently 
Immediately after he tells them to lean into the work that sustains them, he says, you know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. I set you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you get to gather the harvest. I think this speaks to the point. If you have a really wonderful job that you're passionate about, unfortunately, we also need to understand that you are not the only person that God can use to do any particular work. So if God is telling you to rest and the job isn't yet done, you need to understand and trust that God has a way to get that done. Either he's going to give you the time to do it or he's got someone else in mind to do it. It's really hard for me. I like to check things off my list. I really like to check things off my list. And it's sometimes hard when, when my Sabbath comes along or when the end of the day is coming and I feel that God is telling me I need to slow down to not do one more thing and to understand that either it doesn't have to happen or it'll happen some other time. In the same way, we also need to understand that we're part of a chain of work that God has throughout history. Again, to go back to the spiritual tetrachromat, if we can see how God is working through and around us, we can see that we're finishing the work that someone else started and be grateful for that, and also that we're planting the seed for someone else to harvest in the future. So when you look at these four things, it feels a little bit like Christianity 101 to me. I mean, I've heard all of these things before. So why is it so hard? I should tell you, I've been working really hard to Sabbath for four months now. I mean, really hard, because my doctor told me to. And I still, every time Sabbath comes along, I have a little bit of like a, ah, but I just need to get the dishes done, and then I'll be able to rest. It's really hard. And why is it so hard for us? I think there are two reasons. One is that we want to be responsible. I don't think that's a wrong thing. We, God has given us things and people that entrusted to our care that we need to be responsible. But if that becomes more important, being responsible is more important than being responsive to what God has for us, we're getting ourselves into a dangerous place. If we're not continually checking in with God through more prayerful work and Sabbath, it's easy to let the world re-influence our priorities. If we look back at the story of Mary and Martha, who was doing what she should have? Mary or Martha? Who was being responsible? Who was being a good, upstanding citizen? It was Martha. At the time, Mary would, should probably have been deeply ashamed for her laziness and for in, her inhospitality to the people around her. But Jesus himself said she made the right choice. I think that when we latch on to those things, those, those visions of ourselves as being responsible or on top of things or always the person to get something done, it feels right, and maybe it is for the moment, but if we're not taking the time to let God clear our vision, it can cloud it until we're not seeing God move around us at all. Which leads to the second reason, and if you haven't gotten this, um, I think we need to be ruthlessly committed to taking a Sabbath. Not legalistically. Not we don't turn off the lights and we don't drive a car and nobody cooks, right? But we need to pursue this because it's important to God and then it needs to be important to us. It's not easy. As I said before, I'm constantly struggling and I have a really good reason to do it. 
I wish I could say, like, these three easy steps helped me to cut, get in touch with God and see where he was moving. But it's a struggle to turn away from the priorities of the world to the priorities of God every single time for me. Which leads me back to my story. So I'm very type A. It's hard for me to slow down. I'm never late to anywhere, even with three kids. And people who know me will attest to that. I'm never, ever late. Which is not a good thing, because when Jesus talked in Samaria, when he talked to the woman at the well in Samaria, he changed his plans and stayed for two extra days, and thousands were saved. Right? So it's something I need to work on, being late if God tells me I should be late. But I committed to a slower Christmas. A slower four months, but especially a slower Christmas, which was hard. Christmas is a great time for kids, and when you have little kids, you want them to experience everything. I wanted to do Snowflake Lane and Zoo Lights and all the really fun stuff, but I cleared my calendar, and I let God pencil in what he wanted. And so a few weeks, I was talking to Kurt about the sermon, which I knew I was giving, and he was telling me how, he, yeah, he's doing it too. He's slowing down, and God cut his to-do list down, and like, the stuff just wide, was wide open. And I was like, uh-huh, Kurt, yeah. I've had sort of the same experience. Because no. <laughs> that same week, um, my refrigerator broke. Which they couldn't deliver one until yesterday. It came. It's wonderful. Um, my daughter, Rowan, had pink eye. She got hives from that pink eye, so we had to go back, and I was very afraid for her. Um, I had, my car had to go in and out of the shop twice because we had a rat living in it that had chewed the wires. Just the brakes, so nothing important, right? <laughs> um, my husband had a disaster at work. He's a tech guy, and he broke the build, which should strike fear into your heart if you are a tech person, I guess. Um, so he was working really, really hard to fix the build. Um, and then my two toddlers decided to potty train without my permission. And you don't want to miss that boat, right? Like, when it comes, you got to head on it. But that's what was happening during that week. I was stuck in the house with a lot of things going wrong, trying to navigate it all. And honestly, it's not all that different. I would say once every 10 weeks, everything in my life just completely goes awry. And that's where I was, writing a sermon about Sabbath and rest and slowing down, while literally you know, putting out fires all around me. But in that week, that week full of things that should have driven me crazy, God brought me such joy and sustaining work to push me from one bad moment, you know, through those bad moments, from good, one good moment to the next. Little things, like we had an Advent wreath with the candles, lighting them with my daughters and talking about hope and joy and what Christmas is about. My eldest daughter began writing her own prayers to put in the prayer box so she could read them. And she would, dinner time at her house was a little chaotic. So she would stop her sisters from eating. Wait, we have to pray. Right? That's a moment where if I hadn't been open to what God was doing, I would have blazed right by, right? But I saw it, and I held it, and I felt such completeness. That's what God was giving me. One night after all of this, I was sitting with my husband, and we were laughing over something stupid. I don't even remember what it was. And he looked at me, and he said, I haven't heard you laugh like that in months. And he was right. I hadn't. I mean, I was laughing to the point where I couldn't even breathe. In this week, 
And I was still worried, okay? Don't get me wrong. If you ask any of my family members, I was still completely worried over my daughter. I still yelled at my kids more than I want to. I still lost my temper. And at the end of every day, I was still completely exhausted. No extra energy. But I was able to see just a little glimpse of the beauty and life that God had for me. So if we go back to the original question, which is how do we reconcile doing what our hand finds to do with all its might with a light burden and an easy yoke? I don't have all the answers, and if you guys have more, I would love to hear them because I'm still obviously working on this. But I think we need to commit to letting God give us an easier burden. If God gives you work, by all means, do it. The Bible says it. Do it with all your might. God gives you something, love the Lord your God with everything you have. But when the time comes to rest, I think we need to do that with all our might too. It's not easy. We think it is and it's not. Because it's not just rest. It's God transforming us, setting us apart, cleaning off the priorities of the world so that we can see the abundant life and beauty that's been there all along. We have a chance to become spiritual tetrachromats and see things that no one else can see. See colors, see beauty, see life that seemingly isn't there, but in reality, in God's reality, actually is. So that's my hope for the new year, that we might be able to just enter into that a little bit. Let us pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for a wonderful holiday to celebrate your son coming down to us and the abundance that that brought to us, Lord. And I pray that as we enter this new year, that you would help us to see more and more what you have for us, the life, the work, the rest, Lord, and that you would help guide our steps. Lord, I thank you for this community, and I pray that you would strengthen it and help us to help each other as we try to become the people you want us to be.